Well, good evening, Fairview. It seems like old times. Do you remember the days back when Cindy and I were back and forth in Florida sending a recorded message for Wednesday evening studies? Well, don't get used to it. Uh, it's only happening this week that I'm going to be back in the saddle. But uh, nevertheless, the one positive about these video studies is that I usually always finish on time, unlike when I'm there live and in person. Of course, this evening we're going to be continuing our study through Jeremiah, and it's going to be an abbreviated study, most likely. But of course, Jeremiah was considered one of the major prophets. He was a prophet of God, but he was also a patriot. He loved his country, and God had called him to preach repentance to the Jews and warn them of coming judgment if they didn't repent. Well, as a result, he was hated. He was considered and accused as being a traitor by those in the priesthood, those false prophets, and even his own king and governing authorities. And the people hated him and wanted him dead. Boy, what a tough ministry. That's why Jeremiah is frequently referred to as the weeping prophet. Well, of course, three things I want you to remember, actually two threes, these three contemporary major prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, all lived at the same time, with Jeremiah being the senior of the three. And of course, there were three conquests of Jerusalem, which the book of Jeremiah revolves around, and in fact, Daniel and Ezekiel also revolve around those. Of course, King Josiah's death was critical because God had promised Josiah that he wouldn't judge Judah until after he had died. Because of Josiah's tender heart and repentance, God promised that he would spare them while he was still in control. Well, he died in 609. By 606, Jerusalem was first subjugated by Nebuchadnezzar. And it was at that point in time that Daniel was taken captive and taken back to Babylon. But Jerusalem was not destroyed at that time. Some of the temple artifacts and treasures were taken, but Jerusalem wasn't destroyed. They had a puppet king put in place. That king was Jehoiakim. Well, after about 11 years of disobedience and rebellion in Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar sent his troops back now to bring things under control. And again, Jerusalem wisely surrendered without a fight. And again, the city wasn't destroyed. But at this time, more were taken captive, including the prophet Ezekiel. Then finally, after another puppet king had been in charge for a while, and after another time of disobedience, Nebuchadnezzar was fed up and sent troops down to destroy the city. That happened in 587. The temple was destroyed. The city was devastated. And Jeremiah the prophet, faithful unto God, was inside the walls of the city throughout this entire period and experienced the siege and also experienced the hatred from his own people. Just so you'll have an idea, Jeremiah preached for some 40 years, beginning midway through Josiah's reign. You can kind of see the outline on the screen. You see that light white box that encompasses Jeremiah's entire ministry. He actually was ministering through the reigns or partial reigns of five kings of Judah. We believe that tonight's lesson from Jeremiah 18 took place during the reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was a complete rebel. He was entirety uh, in rebellion to God. And he also hated Jeremiah and resisted Jeremiah fervently. So let's pick up in Jeremiah chapter 18 as we continue our study. And the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord said, Arise, Jeremiah, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. 
Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, a rot of work on the wheels. So Jeremiah was told, go down south of the city. And you see on the screen this area here, which is where the potters were located. There was an abundance of water. This was also near their dump, a trash heap. This was a commonly known area. And God told Jeremiah, go down there, and once you get there, I'm going to tell you the message. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. But first, with this illustration. So again, Jeremiah went down and saw what was going to be revealed to him on the wheels. You see the potter's wheels. This is before they had electricity. The potter would spin the wheel with his feet, and he would craft the clay with his hands. This area of the potter's field is, this time, the view is from the Mount of Olives, looking back towards the west across the city of Jerusalem. Just up to the right, just out of your sight, is where the golden dome of the rock now stands. And you see, I've identified that as the temple complex. That blue long triangle is the ancient city of David. That's where David first established his capital as the king of Judah and ultimately of Judah and all of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can see here nearest to us and running lengthwise north to south is what's called the Kidron Valley. And then back to the upper left, you see running diagonally from the lower left hand up towards the upper right, you see the Hinnom Valley. It was in that area that was the potter's field. As a matter of fact, it's a very famous passage. The prophet Zechariah had foretold one of the 456 prophecies which were fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. This in a message in Zechariah 11 that the Jews would ultimately reject their good shepherd and break the staff. And the shepherd would say, well, give me my wages. And they would say, well, here are what you're worth, 30 pieces of silver. Well, that was the price of a servant who happened to be killed by an ox under the law. And that was the price that Judas had bartered to betray Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. And just as Zechariah prophesied, he took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. We know looking back that Judas had remorse over what was happening to Jesus. And he went and gave the silver or attempted to give the silver back to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin said, too late, the deal's done. Judas said, I don't want the money. And he threw the money on the floor there in the temple. Well, this was blood money. It couldn't be put into the temple treasury. So they, in fact, took those 30 pieces of silver and prepaid some temple expenses. What they did was they bought a potter's field down south of the city, that area that you can see on the screen or I showed you a moment ago. And with this, they could prepay for burial expenses of indigents that couldn't afford to be buried on their own. What you see on the screen is a view from Caiaphas's house called Gallicantru, the place where the cock crowed three times, the place where Peter denied the Lord three times as he was being tried the night of his ultimate persecution or crucifixion. This is a close-up of that area called Akaldama, the field of blood. Now it is the location of a Greek Orthodox, excuse me, of a Greek Orthodox monastery. You know, I used to be able to talk before I had cancer. Now I have a tough time talking. Nevertheless, it doesn't keep me from talking. I still talk and talk too much, as you all are well aware. 
Well, we'll pick back up there. Jeremiah is now down there in that area. And God is giving him a message, another visual sermon that he was to deliver to Jerusalem and the Jews. Verse 4, And the vessel that the potter made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. In other words, it wasn't turning out as the potter had hoped. So he started over again and made another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, Jeremiah, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you, O house of Israel, in my hand. Now, Here's the truth. Here's the message that's coming from this visual illustration. Just as the potter, when not happy with the product, started over again and crafted something that he was happy with, or did it in accordance to his will since he was the potter, he said, At what instance shall I speak concerning a nation, and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it? If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. This was another call of repentance to the Jews. Of course, we know the ultimate verdict. They were going to say no. God already knew they were going to say no. God is outside of time. God created time, space, and matter. So God knows ultimately the decisions that we're going to make. Nevertheless, as we live in time, we are completely responsible to make the decision to either trust God or to disobey God. He doesn't make the decision for us. Since He is outside time, He knows the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's already given us the book of the Revelation. We know how it's going to turn out. Thankfully, we know that we win. We're on the winning team. But the message here to the Jews is, for example, consider Nineveh. God had pronounced judgment upon that wicked city if they didn't repent. But they did repent. And because of that, God changed the direction that He was going to deal with the Nineveh. God didn't change His morality. He just changed the course of action based upon Nineveh's response to His call for repentance. We know that Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes. And rather than destroying the city that God had promised He was going to do, and He would have done it as Jonah had gone to preach to that city, God spared the city and poured out mercy upon that city, that Gentile country, enemies of Israel. And they survived for another hundred plus years because of this act of repentance. Now the Lord continues through Jeremiah. And at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. So again, the same lead in as He just had given us. If it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. So we see in the first illustration, God had pronounced judgment on an evil nation. Yet that nation repented, and God poured out mercy. Well, in this case, God is talking to the Jews. I promised blessings upon Israel. However, Israel has disobeyed me. Don't think that you're going to be spared from judgment. And that was what the false prophets were saying. As they were standing against Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was warning them of coming judgment, they would point to the temple and say, listen, we're God's people. It doesn't matter that we worship all these pagan gods. We're God's people. He lives right there in that big building. He's going to take care of us. Well, it wasn't the case. If they had repented, then in fact God would have spared them. 
But because they didn't repent, even though God had promised blessings upon Israel to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to, to, to Moses, re- reaffirmed to, to Joshua, even though God had made those promises, and by the way, God will keep those promises. Eventually, the promises made literally to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of a blessed kingdom, the chief nation on planet earth through which the Lord Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, would rule and reign over the planet. It will happen. We call that the millennial reign of Christ. It will happen right after the seven years of tribulation, right after the battle of Armageddon. King Jesus will come riding to the rescue, and He will establish a literal throne in Jerusalem, the throne of His father David, and He will rule and reign the world in righteousness. For the first time ever, the world will be governed in righteousness. That will literally happen. However, at this point, the Jews had the opportunity to repent. Jeremiah was preaching repentance, yet they continued to say no. Now therefore, go and speak to the men of Judah, Jeremiah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you Jews, and devise a device against you. I'm giving you another chance, another chance to repent. Return you now, everyone, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Understand that a nation can't think for itself. A nation is comprised of the people. It's comprised of the leadership. The behavior of the people ultimately brings about God's blessings or judgment upon that nation. The Jews were rejecting God's call for repentance. And ultimately, the nation would be judged as a result. Now here was their response. And they, being Judah and Jerusalem, said, Give it up, Jeremiah. There's no hope. We're going to continue to live our own lives, our own ways. We're going to continue to do what we want to do. We're the Lord of us, not you. We will walk after our own devices, and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. Well, since we have a a special evening tonight, I'm going to bring this part to a conclusion with these truths. They mocked Jeremiah, and they said no. And we know, of course, ultimately what happened. God judged the city, destroyed the city, tore down the temple and everything. Why did God predestine to judge Judah? No. God judged Judah because of their willful defiance and disobedience. Now, the reason I'm making this point is this passage is referenced in Romans 9. And there are many denominations that get the doctrine of predestination from Romans 9. And they say, look, God chooses to send some people to heaven and send some people to hell. I do not believe that to be true at all. Understand the context of Romans 9. As we are teaching through the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is teaching great doctrine to this church, or the churches, the house churches in Rome, in the book of Romans, through the first eight chapters. He comes to chapter 8 and tells us that sometimes things are going to be tough, but don't worry. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord, who are the called according to His purpose. And God actually uses that strength, or that, that, the times of purifying uh, the refiner's fire to bring us uh, where we would be predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Don't worry, it's all going to work out good. As a matter of fact, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Even persecution doesn't mean that God is not smiling upon you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God as we see the finality of chapter 8. Well, the logical question by a Gentile believer 
or even perhaps some of the Jews. Well, well, wait a second. What about Israel? God's chosen people, God's elect, yet now Israel is subjugated to the Roman Empire. Has God stopped loving Israel? Has God changed his life? No. And understand that in chapter 9, God deals with Israel's sovereign calling, Israel's past. Chapter 10, God deals with Israel's present, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. To the Jew first and, all, and also to the Gentile. Anyone that trusts the Lord Jesus won't be ashamed. They won't be disappointed. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then in chapter 11, we see Israel future. One day at Armageddon, all of Israel, that remaining remnant. Although we see from Ezekiel, we see from Zechariah, we see that there's going to be a substantial percentage of the Jews that, that, that are dealt with very harshly through that seven years of great tribulation. Nevertheless, there's going to be a remnant that survives, and they will cry out to King Jesus when they see him stand on the Mount of Olives, and he will, in fact, usher in his kingdom. However, chapter 9 is not dealing with predestination, choosing some people for heaven and some people to hell. In fact, Paul says, as chapter 9 deals with this idea of the potter forming a vessel for, for glory or a vessel for, for judgment, Paul says that the potter makes the vessels fit for glory or fit for de destruction, but it's based upon what we just read. And what is the deciding factor? Repentance or obedience. If that Gentile nation whom God was going to judge repented, then God spared them. There was mercy. But even the Jews whom were God's chosen people, when they rebelled, God judged. So understand that the potter, what he ultimately does, is going to depend upon our decision, repentance or obedience, rejection or defiance. And understand that God will bless a nation and judge them based upon their actions toward Him. Now, folks, there's two truths that don't contradict. They're just true. And in the mind of God, they're true. God is sovereign. This is a true statement. We can read Revelation and understand and know and be comforted that we win. God ultimately wins. The devil winds up in the lake of fire. But man also has free will. God created us that way. And it's only through free will that we can truly love the Lord. Because love is a decision. Love is an action. If God had created us as robots designed to obey, that wouldn't be love. But we have to choose to trust Christ or not. Any man who rejects Christ will be separated from God forever in hell and ultimately the lake of fire. Jesus said to John or to Nicodemus in John 3, famous passage of Scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. But that the world through Him might be saved. This is the key. Whosoever believeth in Him is not condemned. But whosoever doesn't believe in Him is condemned already because He has chosen not to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Forgiveness is freely offered. Man has the ability to receive or to reject. God does not predestine some to heaven and some to hell. Whoever accepts is part of the elect and predestined to glory. Whoever rejects is part of the damned and predestined for judgment. Many places in Scripture God reminds us of this. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Peter said that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance through Christ Jesus. God is sovereign. Ultimately, his will and glory will be done. Likewise, in Romans 9, Romans 9, God raised up Egypt, as the Scripture says, in power and ultimately destroyed them. Why? Well, God used it for his glory. But why? Because Pharaoh said no. And as you look in the book of Exodus, he said no, not once, but twice. And even after the third plague, when the lice were poured out upon the land, that's when God said, okay, your no is no. Your heart is hard, and now it's too late. My invitation is off the table. Going on to verse 13, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Ask ye now among the Gentiles, Who has ever heard of such a thing? The virgin of Israel. In other words, God's intended. Israel's supposed to be pure for him. Hath done a very horrible thing. Go ask the Gentiles. Has there been any case where any nation has left its own gods to worship other gods? Well, apparently the answer was no. That was unheard of. Even Gentiles were faithful to worship the false gods that didn't even exist. But they were faithful to their own gods. However, not Israel. God had demonstrated Himself abundantly, visibly, bringing them out of captivity in Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea, providing them manna in the wilderness for 40 years, bringing them into the Promised Land. And after all these years and opportunities to do the right thing, here they were, following off into worshiping other gods. We see that Jeremiah 2 references this very thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are not even really gods? Well, it's never happened. Yet here Israel was guilty of that very thing. goes on, be part of verse 14, just as sure as there's snow in the, in the mountains uh, of Lebanon, just as sure as the rivers flow from Lebanon. Even the Gentile nations were faithful to their own gods, and here is Israel abandoned the one true God so that they could chase after false gods. They're forsaking the abundant grace and blessings that God was going to pour out on them so they could chase after idols. Verse 15, because my people hath forgotten me. They've burned incense. That went along with prayers. They've burned incense to vanity. That means things that don't exist. And they've caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths. They haven't followed the paths that I laid down for them. Instead, they're walking after their own paths. And as a result, they're going to make their land desolate. People are going to whisper about it and talk about it and just be amazed at what has happened to what was once this great kingdom, the kingdom that David ruled, the kingdom that Solomon ruled. They're going to shake their heads in astonishment as they see what God does because of their disobedience. Verse 17, I will scatter them as with an east wind. Now understand, when you look at this map, it means a couple of things. One, the Arabian Desert was to the east. When judgment came, frequently there was a devastating sandstorm or east wind that came in, this harsh, dry heat. And also, when you look due east, you go far enough around the Arabian Desert, and that's where you get to the country of Babylon. That's how God was going to judge them. I will show them the back and not the face. In other words, you know, I've promised to watch over you. However, because of your disobedience, I'll turn my back on you. And that will be in the day that I judge you, in the day of calamity. <laughs> then they said, would they repent? Nope. Come, 
Let us devise devices against Jeremiah. Not only do they resist and reject the message, but they hate the messenger. And hasn't that always been true? Going all the way back to faithful Abel being stoned by his brother Cain, to the rejection and martyrdom of the prophets, to the martyrdom of Stephen. Around the world, even faithful pastors today, nobody likes the message of truth, and nobody likes the messenger of truth. And they were going to destroy Jeremiah in many ways, one of which was spreading rumors about him. One of the ways that they spread rumors is they accused him of being a traitor. Can you imagine? There was not a more faithful patriot in all of Judah than Jeremiah. He was preaching a message that would have resulted in their continued blessings. Instead, they hated him for it. So let's devise devices against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from our priests, their false priests, nor counsel from the wise, nor word from the prophet, their false prophets. And they were holding on to the promises that God had spelled out in Deuteronomy. But those were conditional promises. God said, you bless, uh, you, you obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, it's going to be trouble. They disobeyed. Yet the false prophets are saying, we've got nothing to worry about. Look, there's the temple. God lives here. We're His people. Come, let us smite Jeremiah with the tongue. Let us not give heed to any of his words. So they were trying to destroy his reputation. And then if they could get the people against him, they could destroy them. Understand that's how it always works. Look back at what Hitler was able to do to the Jews in Germany. First of all, spread rumors that the Jews were the cause of all problems. They're the cause of illness. They're the cause of their, their financial problems. It's all these evil Jews. You turn the hearts and minds of the people against them, then it was easy to lead in their arrest and ultimately the destruction of the Jews through the ovens of Auschwitz and other places. Well, the first tactic here was to spread rumors about what an evil, wicked man Jeremiah was. And then they could take him, this traitor, they could arrest him, they could throw him in jail, they could torture him and eventually kill him. And the people would all be on board. So here's Jeremiah's prayer to God for justice. God, I need you to defend me. Give heed to me, O Lord. Have you heard the voice of those that contend against me, contend with me? By the way, Jeremiah was standing for God and with God. So not only were they rejecting Jeremiah, but they were rejecting God. Jeremiah was reminding God of this as if God needed to be reminded. However, we have the luxury of hearing Jeremiah's heart-wrenching, heartfelt cries unto God. As he was being faithful to do everything that God had called him to do. And what did he get for it? Persecution, hatred, ostracization, jail, torture, cruelty. And they wanted to kill him. Jeremiah says, Lord, shall evil be recompensed for good? For they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them and to turn away thy wrath from them, Lord. Again, as if the Lord has forgotten. Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine. Pour out their blood by the force of the sword. And let their wives be bereaved of their children and be widows. And let their men be put to death. Let their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when thou shalt bring an army against them. Because they have digged a pit for me and hid snares to entrap me. They're trying to capture me. Yet, Lord, Thou knowest all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity. Neither blot out their sin from Thy sight, but let them be overthrown before Thee. Deal thus with them in the time of Thine anger. 
Well, we may look at that as from our era and say that's rather harsh. But understand that the same Jesus who on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do, will also be the same Jesus that one day comes at Armageddon and tramples the, the disobedient, the ungodly under his feet. It'll be the same Jesus that one day says, Depart from me, you cursed in everlasting darkness. I never knew you. God's patience is not justice denied. It is justice delayed. Ultimately, justice will be done. And every man that stands before the Lord Jesus will be speechless. That day at the great white throne of judgment, there will be no defense. They'll be guilty. And they'll know they're guilty. And as judgment is read, ultimately that will be the defiance of God's mercy, the defiance of God's offering for forgiveness, offering for justice. As Hebrews said, it be trampling under feet the blood of the Lord Jesus and holding in despite the work of the Holy Spirit. God is patient right now. God is long-suffering, willing to forgive anybody and everybody. But there will be a day where justice will be meted out. I pray that America repents before it's too late for us as a nation. And I pray that every individual will repent as they now have opportunity. One day, the Lord will let your no be no. And one day, you'll breathe your last breath. And at that point, there'll be no second chances.